0: This mini-series is sponsored by the Bluefield Project. My name is Maria Kent Beers and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present our first very special mini-series. This eight-episode compilation was created as a window into what it's like to participate in FTD research. In April 2022, we spent five days contributing to the All-FTD study, the largest FTD study in North America. All-FTD is jointly funded by the National Institute of Aging and the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. All-FTD is led by UCSF in San Francisco, and the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There are 23 participating sites across North America. The focus of this study is to understand the changes in brain function that occur as a result of disease progression, and how changes differ from normal aging. The overall goal of All-FTD is to prepare for treatment trials in FTLD.
1: As always, we hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding and allows you to accept the good. Always, always accept the good.
0: This is remember me.
1: As a follow-up to our recap of day two, we interviewed Dr. Howie Rosen and picked his brilliant brain, asking all the questions we had about the MRI.
0: Dr. Howie Rosen is a behavioral neurologist and holds the Dorothy Kristen French Foundation endowed professorship for Parkinsonian and other neurodegenerative disorders. He is an investigator on multiple federal and state funded research grants and serves as director of the California State Alzheimer's Disease Center at UCSF. He is the associate director of UCSF's federally funded Alzheimer's Research Center, director of UCSF's Behavioral Neurology Training Program, and director of curriculum for the Global Brain Health Institute. And
1: he is one of the three all-FTD principal investigators. Enjoy more science.
0: Thank you so much for being on Remember Me. We like to just jump right in. And so we want you to talk to us like we're maybe some people that weren't so good in science class. I know that's me. So can you break down for us, what is an MRI?
2: Sure. An MRI is a way to take a picture of your brain using magnets and radio waves. And essentially, most of your body, including your brain, is made up of water. And the water molecules have hydrogen in them. And so what happens is you put your body in a big magnet and um, each of those hydrogen atoms, they're little tiny magnets. And so all of those hydrogen atoms in your brain align with the magnetic field of the big magnet. So they kind of twist themselves to go in alignment. And then um, if anybody's ever gotten in an MRI, They put your head in this uh, plastic, like a cage. It's not a locked cage, but it you know it surrounds your head, and it's basically an antenna, and so that antenna is pulsing out little radio waves at your brain, and that makes the little hydrogen atoms in your brain tilt some away from the way the magnet, the giant magnet that you're in, wants them to go. And then the radio wave stops for a split second, and while it stops. The little hydrogen items want to go back to the way they were so they can be aligned with the big magnetic field. And as they do that, they emit some energy that the antenna around your head can pick up. And basically, they use the little signals, the little energy, you know, radio waves coming back from your brain to basically figure out at each little spot in your brain from the hydrogen atoms there what's going on in terms of. Uh, the, the, what the tissue is like, how dense it is, whether it has more water in it or less water. and basically you know the the, the computer software that's connected to the scanner uses all that information to make a picture of your brain. Was that uh, simple enough or can I go even simpler? I'm not sure I know how to go simpler.
0: That's okay. I think that I think that's the challenge when you are an expert in the field breaking it down is very challenging.
2: Beyond just saying it's a way to take a picture of your brain with magnets and radio waves. Can't really go too too much further than that without getting into the details. I
0: appreciate that. So in terms of MRIs as they relate to FTD and the Mm -hmm. all-FTD study, what are... So maybe I should break that down. So what role does the MRI play in the diagnosis process? Yeah. FTD. What does an MRI look like or could look like with someone living with FTD?
2: Yeah. So I'll try to take off from what I said before. Right. So the the MRI is basically mapping all the water in, in your skull. Right. And some parts of the, of the inside the skull are very watery, like you have spinal fluid, it's just plain old fluid. And that surrounds the brain and bathes it and helps to nourish it. And then of course you have the brain in there. The brain is less watery. It has more other things in it, fat and other um, kinds of tissue mixed in with it to help it function well. And so if you actually look at a picture of your brain on an MRI, you see the brain, And then around it, you see this kind of cushion of water all around it and even inside it. So one of the things that happens as degenerative diseases like frontotemporal dementia start to affect the brain is that the brain starts to shrink because each of the nerve cells starts to shrink. And when that happens over millions of nerve cells, then that affects the whole brain. Some of the nerve cells even die, not all of them, but some. And so as that process is happening, and the nerve cells are sh- getting smaller, the brain shrinks. And so what, what that means is when you look at a picture of the brain, the brain part, which is, you know, it, it's it looks different than the fluid around it, uh, gets smaller, and there's more fluid around it. So by basically seeing a picture of the brain within the fluid space, and they say, it looks like there's a lot of fluid around it, because the brain has shrunk. That's how we make a diagnosis. And specifically, When the front part of the brain is more shrunken than the back part of the brain, that suggests that some process is affecting the front more than the back. And frontotemporal dementia is one of those kinds of processes where the shrinking is going to hit the front part of the brain more than the back. So what you do is you say, well, you kind of have to put two and two together and say, well, if the person's symptoms really suggest that the frontal lobe is having trouble or the temporal lobe that's another part of the brain. And then you look at the MRI and you say, yeah. And if I look at the MRI, the front part of the brain and the front part of the temporal lobes is shrinking more than the rest of the brain. You kind of add all that up and you say, then the evidence really supports that it's frontotemporal dementia.
1: And do MRIs tell you different things in genetic FTD versus sporadic FTD?
2: Well, the basic information is the same because all we're looking at is shrinking, right? So you can't tell why they're shrinking, whether it's from a genetic cause or not. Um, Sometimes when a person's FTD is caused by a genetic cause, it might affect where in the brain is shrinking a little differently. So people with a genetic cause of a disease, their symptoms might be a little different than the people who have the same disease, but from a a not single gene cause. So the pattern of atrophy may be different, and you could sometimes look at that pattern atrophy and say, oh, I suspect this might be a genetic cause of this disorder. The other thing is, is that in genetic disorders, right, we have the opportunity to identify people before they even have symptoms, you know, because they're from a family that's affected by this kind of disease, and they may or may not carry the mutation. And if they do, And we can find that out in the research, right? We can then see if we can see any early signs of change even before the symptoms develop. And shrinking of the brain is one of those kinds of symptoms. And so, one of the goals of our study that you were asking me about is that we're looking to see how early can we see shrinking and what does it mean? One of the things you have to know is that as we age, all of our brains shrink. That's just normal right? So just because somebody has shrinking of the brain compared with maybe 10 years ago, that doesn't mean they have any problems. So we have to figure out how much shrinking is meaningful versus not meaningful at all.
0: Can you explain to us the difference, if there is any, between a research MRI and an MRI that is being performed, you know, in a clinical setting where you're Uh, perhaps looking for a diagnosis?
2: So in some sense, you know, they they aren't that different, but the radiologist will use whatever approaches they think are indicated to address the question that the doctor is asking. In research, the MRI is always done the same exact way in everybody. And that's one of the very important things about research. Um, And that ensures that when you start grouping people together, You can get the the cleanest data that lets you look at the question you're asking in the best way possible. And essentially, that's the biggest thing that makes it a research MRI, is the the quality control and the uniformity of the way it gets done time after time, person after person, including across multiple scanners in different hospitals that are all enrolling in the study. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that's really the biggest difference.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, I think my MRI was like this most of the time. so it wasn't an enjoyable experience, but I made it through. Maria had to come in with me like in almost basically in the scanner. I'm like, can she just change into the gown and hold my foot? The uh-huh. technician was like, yeah, yeah.
2: she That's can prove for radiology MRIs too. I mean, I think I saw a statistic once kind of about one in five people experiences like claustrophobia. And, and sometimes it's severe and sometimes it's not that bad. I don't like it going in the MRIs. Okay. Um, so it's not unusual. And that would be so true bad. if they were doing it for your health or for research. It's right. the same experience, right. bad experience. Right.
1: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
0: And now a word from our sponsor, The Bluefield Project. Let's talk about hope. My name is Wanda Smith. I was 28 when my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. We enrolled in research and later learned it was not Alzheimer's at all, but FTD. Hope came when researchers identified a malfunctioning gene copper granulin that was causing brain cells to die in our family. Our visit to research has opened a world of knowledge and turned despair into hope for a healthy future. The path to treatments and cures will come from this research. So please come with me to the front of the line. Find out more about clinical trials and participating in FTD studies like AllFTD or GenFi by searching ftdregistry.org. So I'd love to hear more about how the MRI is used in the AllFTD study.
2: Yeah, so I think one way is what I talked about earlier is the idea of can we actually see any shrinking that might be happening or other changes on some of the other kinds of MRI uh, sequences that happen before somebody develops symptoms. And to do that, we need to image people who don't even have the mutation so that we know what normal, you know, changing and aging looks like. And people who have the mutation who don't have any symptoms, and people who might be having symptoms, and people who clearly have symptoms. All of those kinds of people getting images tell us about which kinds of changes are actually associated with symptoms, which ones come before symptoms, and which ones are just normal, you know, part of normal aging. So that's one way. Another way that we use the imaging is when people already have symptoms. One way of knowing how much the the brain is changing is with brain imaging. So one person's brain MRI might shrink faster than another's. And we believe that the rate of change is an indicator of kind of how fast the disease is moving. So there's an idea that maybe we can use brain imaging when we develop new treatments to try to use the brain imaging as another indicator of whether the treatment is helping the person or not. So if on average the people who are on the treatment let's say their brain shrinks by 5% over the next year if the treatment actually makes people's brain shrink only 2% then maybe that's an indicator of that it helps or even if it made the brain stop shrinking altogether or you know things like that so that's another possible use but the problem is first we have to prove that We know what happens to the brain when when the drug works for people feeling better. So nobody's ready to just use the brain MRI until we know that it actually, you know, um, goes with people feeling better. But the advantage to MRI is you can measure it much more precisely than how people feel, you know, because somebody could score well on a test or say I'm feeling good because of what day it is, you know, they woke up late or not. The MRI is not affected by all that. So the, the precision is you can you can find an effect with a smaller number of people, which really helps with drug development because then the studies can be faster and, in, and in, include fewer individuals to decide if the drug works or not. So we're not sure that that idea is going to take hold, but we're developing the data to use it. And I think the last thing that imaging is used is sometimes to test out new scientific ideas. So in other words, an area that we're very interested in is what we call inflammation. So inflammation is the body's own reactions to changes that, you know, bring in immune cells and it's, we believe that the inflammation is an attempt to repair damage, but we also recognize that too active inflammation can contribute to the damage itself. And so for instance, sometimes we'll say, well, we believe inflammation is an important part of how these diseases get worse. We can test that by saying, well, if we measure inflammation in the brain, does it actually correlate with like how healthy the brain looks on MRI? So we can say people with more inflammation should have worse looking MRIs than people with less inflammation who are otherwise similar. And we do we try to ask questions like that all the time and and the MRI can be used very nicely for that. So those are the three different ways I could think of. And there are others too. But
0: So it was very helpful that Rachel, oh, goodness. oh my MRI. gosh.
1: I mean, I had an van, let's be honest. So I was kind of like, woo, when I got out, but it was, I mean, I've never had one, so it was different, but i would do it again.
2: Yeah. It's extremely valuable. I mean, you know, it would be nice if we can develop blood tests that would do the same idea because then you could get them anywhere and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have to worry about claustrophobia, but we're not there yet. And we may or may not ever get there. In other words, the brain imaging may provide information that we'll never get with a blood test. It's an open question.
0: So what happens if an MRI is done as a part of the study So a participant is just doing it for the sake of the study, but you find something else. Yep. How how does the research study handle that?
2: Yeah. So we are committed to making sure that any health problems, that we identify them for the person and we help them figure out what to do about it. So if we see something that in a normal, regular radiology setting... That we we know what it could represent and we know how normally it should be assessed. We tell the person, we saw this, it, you know, it could be this or that. And we recommend the following. And if you want, we'll call your, at least at UCSF, we will offer to send a letter to the doctor and a copy of the MRI so that they can follow up on it. Often it means rescanning in a regular MRI scanner, you know, a, 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 in a non-research setting to get a, a closer look at whatever the question is. And then it might mean follow-up with additional doctors depending on what they think is going on. Often it nothing happens. In other words, a, a lot of findings are ultimately benign but need a further assessment to make sure that's true. But sometimes we find serious things that end up in, you know, somebody has to have an operation to remove something or or other kinds of things it's not common but it does happen
0: so just to wrap things up rachel has a family tradition that they do this thing called least favorite so her family every night shares their least favorite and their most favorite part of the day and we've kind of adopted that as a part of our mini series so we'd love to know your most and least favorite part about could be anything having to do with all ftd study or you know working in the field of ftd what what is your least and most favorite
2: hmm i'm not sure either it's not so easy let's see can i have two most favorites
0: yes you may
2: i I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see if i can limit it to two i'll start with two i might have one more I think what I like about all STD is the reason I went into neurology and research, which is, you know, the feeling that we're taking a problem that's hard and for which there's a lot of needs that are unmet and trying to do something about it that moves it forward, even though, you know, it's a, maybe a small step in a long path, but it feels good to know that I'm doing that because You know, on the other side of my work, I have to give people bad news and deal help them deal with very difficult issues. And, you know, and part of dealing with it is to acknowledge there's only so much we could do about it. And it's far from what we want to. But at least I can feel good that I'm not just leaving it there. There's another venue in which I'm trying to deal with you know that big, huge gap. So that's one of the favorite things. Something that goes with that is what I like about research, which is it's two things, the feeling that you're um, discovering something new is fun that, you know, other people don't know yet. And and research is inherently a creative process. So, you know, not creative like art, but creative, like you have to face something and deal with it in a new way because it hasn't been dealt with yet. And that's, uh, I, that's why I do one of the main reasons I do research too, is, is, is because it's a way to have fun that way in regular medicine you don't want to be creative you want to do what everybody says works in exactly the way they say to do it right but in research there's no rule book you do it whatever way you could think of and hope that it works and then the last thing which maybe is really number one is i really like my all ftd colleagues a lot i like brad a lot um i like adam a lot i like leah and hillary and everybody else too but those are the people i spend those are your number ones. day to day talking with, and I really it it's a a nice group. It's a dedicated group. We get along, I think, really well, and um, I think we complement each other's strengths and weaknesses nicely, and so it, it's it's a it's a nice community to be part of. I also sorry, I'm not limiting this to one at all, but I also think the FTD community in general is a a positive, nice community, like including the other researchers and care providers and the patients and their care providers, you know, significant others, you know, it's not always like that, you know, there's relatively little negativity. And I mean, obviously the disease is negative. It's hard, but, but, you know, in terms of all the other stuff, people are pretty, pretty good. Mostly. I like that.
1: Dr. Rosen, you're just like my son, Jack. My favorite part of the day was I did art. Actually, no, wait. My favorite part of the day was I played with Thomas. No, 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 no. I'm going to tell you one more. It's just the cutest. I love when people do that.
2: Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, one day one of them is my favorite and the other day one's my favorite, right? Right, right? right,
1: right,
0: right.
1: You guys have all said, at least the people that we've interviewed, your one of your favorites is the relationship between you guys, like even Dr. Bove was like, I have the best team of people that surround me. We get along really well. And so it's sweet that you guys all have the same little.
2: Well, I, I did pay yeah. him to say that. But... Oh,
1: good. Okay. <laughs> so he took
0: your bribe. Great. So I think, I think that'll be really nice for our listeners to hear though, because there's so little hope when you receive the diagnosis, because there is no treatment. And I just remember how devastated i felt when we received my mom's diagnosis but now to be kind of advocating and talking to all these top doctors and hearing how excited you guys are and how well you work together it just it gives me a lot of hope so i appreciate you sharing that and sharing your expertise with
2: us it's a pleasure
0: thank you so much for your
1: time we really appreciate it
2: oh it's a pleasure thank you
1: this is who i am where i come from in my bones. a special thank you to the all ftd study for their support in the creation of this series you can support remember me by visiting our website at www.remembermeftd.com you can shop our merch you can join remembers only or you can donate
0: If you want to connect with us, follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast and make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple so you never miss an episode in this series. Finally, a special thank you to our sponsor, The Bluefield Project. If you want to learn more about research opportunities, visit ftdregistry.org. This podcast is produced by Maria Ken Beers and Rachel Martinez and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey. Kent.